<laughs> this was fun. This was a this is not the normal tenor conversations I'm having, so this was a hoot. Welcome everyone to the latest episode of the Network Age. I'm here as usual with my co-host Norun Mardux and Tim Lukmiptev. But today we have an extra special guest. Josh Rosenthal, uh, Renaissance scholar, Renaissance man, crypto entrepreneur, frequent podcast guest. Josh, how are you doing today? Thanks for being with us. Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I've been I've been listening to your back catalog and really like what you're doing with uh, with the relaunch and number of the themes you're hitting. So so very glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, we're excited to have you as well. And. You've been on a number of podcasts talking about a a ton of interesting stuff, including the parallels between the crypto revolution and the Renaissance and the American Revolution. And we'll link to those in the show notes because all of our listeners should definitely go check those out if, um, if they haven't. But I think we wanted to give you an opportunity to give you the the quick pitch on um, some of the connections that you've seen there for anyone who might not have heard them. And, and then we'll move from there into some other topics we're interested in and eventually get to some audience questions at the end, which we're really excited about to give our listeners a chance to uh, ask you some stuff. So, Super cool. Yeah. No, that's uh, – so crypto renaissance in a nutshell um, – and just by way of background, um, PhD in late medieval Renaissance Reformation history for all the credentialists in the room, received a Fulbright to the Institute of uh, Sorbonne's Institute for uh, Interdisciplinary Studies, kind of a think tank where there's, you know, CERN scientists doing their thing and we're digging through, you know, manuscripts, these documents of privilege and power that are handwritten and encoded with all sorts of siglia where you literally need a, a letter of recommendation from a head of an institution or in some cases a head of state mm-hmm. to get in and see these things. Um, and then uh, finished up that degree, um, had offers even into tenure track academia, decided not to do that. Um, did a startup with my wife and partner. We turned some software and artificial intelligence and natural language processing, sold it to an MIT spin out, and then did another company and took that to a public company, vested out in uh, 17 and doubled down in crypto and was kind of lecturing in one of the, the elite swanky um, kind of Ivy institutions around institutionalism and disruption and innovation and kind of the history of it and was really thinking through what was the difference between, you know, disruptive paradigms that worked versus those that didn't. And as I started sifting through, you know, what was going on in terms of where could you actually do meaningful work and build community outside power hubs of San Francisco and New York, um, I saw crypto and just all the medieval and Renaissance stuff clicked. We were looking at like ledger-based technology and the advent of the printing press. And so like, in a nutshell, you know, one of the most successful times that history changed in a meaningful way was around the world that was in the Middle Ages, which is fundamentally hierarchical and hegemonic. It was, uh, you know, power hierarchy in the cosmic sense, the military sense, economic sense, into the Renaissance, which is the birth of the modern world or the world as, as we know it in many ways. And it kind of gets at history, what, what drives history. Is it great men and ideas? Is it conflict over means of production? Um, I really saw history as being, you know, driven by communities using not any technology, but a specific type of decentralized technology. And so in the shift from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, they used two different types of decentralized technology. One was finance, it was double entry bookkeeping, and that was really ledger-based financial primitives. May sound familiar <laughs> in the audience. And yeah. even if you couldn't read or write, you, you know, you were using a little ledger, you had a wallet and you're keeping notes. And that was 
that was massive. That prevented centralized accounting. There was an explosion of finances, small loans. It was the birth of capitalism or proto-capitalism as we know it. And at the same time, there was another technology which burst on the scenes, and this was a permissionless communication protocol. And we call it the printing press, and we, we think we know what that was. Um, and objectively, that was a bad idea. You know, Gutenberg would have gotten kicked out of every venture capitalist office because only 5% of the people had access to the program. <laughs> And so the technology had this endemic creative force in it. And when we think of printing, we think of, you know, Gutenberg's Bible or text. But most printing at the time was art. It was a big broadsheet. It was called Flugschriften. It, it was a woodcut or a copper etching, which was new technology, and it had a snappy tagline in it. It was the first time you had seen art. And it, it fundamentally carried very powerful ideas, that the world that was wasn't the only possible world, that you could do something else. And so out of this explosion of these two new technologies, they fundamentally took down the hegemonic or power hierarchies, and they created you know, opportunity, pluralism in many ways, and this concept of vocation where you could follow and do what you like and what you're good at. And if you're listening right now, you say, wow, that sounds like super esoteric, and who cares? The medieval guys, they were such chumps. Like, we never would have done that. We always imagine ourselves as like the heroes of history, boldly marching through and changing things. But your medieval twin, like, the punchline is you wouldn't have known your world was permissioned, right? Like, I pull on these three separate themes of value and communication and identity. And value, most money was locked up in land. You needed permission to access it. You needed an IOU. You needed permission to spend it. And today, your audience is fundamentally like medieval up until right now. Like most people's wealth is locked up in land. You think you own a stock. You don't. You own an IOU from Robinhood or from Fidelity or what have you. You want to spend your money. You know, I've had credit card companies deny payment because they wanted to attend, you know, events and they didn't like the content. They knew it wasn't fraud. They knew it wasn't fraudulent. They just didn't like the content. Communication was the same way. You couldn't read, you couldn't write. The idea of doing something new didn't occur to you. Um, and in many ways you think you're free to see anything or to read anything you want to. But uh, you know, obviously you can get deplatformed. That's the easiest thing. But like much more fundamentally, like maybe they'll let you keep talking. Maybe they'll harvest the fruits of your time and attention like a medieval lord and accrue that to their total addressable market. And so what you think you see versus what you actually see is a function of TAM aggregation that you're not even aware of what you see and what you can say. And then finally, identity. Those two things like fuse to form your identity. Um, you know, you worked hard every single day. You were an agricultural laborer. You were a farmer. Your parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, about four more sets of those. And it might have even been your name, right? And like the idea of doing something new was crazy. Um, and so these uprisings or ideas to change that occurred from time to time, but they're violently and swiftly put down repeatedly. So then the question is like, what changed at the last Renaissance? Why did the last one succeed where other other attempts to recreate society, to rebirth, that's literally what the word means, um, succeeded. And the answer was because they used these two new types of technology and they had, a, they had an endemic creative power in and of themselves and they put the power holders in check. They could either ignore the technology to their detriment or they could participate in it and thereby legitimize it. So when I look at crypto, I said, hey, um, double entry bookkeeping, it's very similar to ledger-based technology. Communication, we think we've had, and this is one of the things I like about your guys' show, the theme of this, um, we've had this digitization, but it hasn't had ownership. And so you can't really create, um, you know, you can't build anything that persists in a, in a synthetic space without ownership. And so 
when we say we have the printing press or the internet is the printing press, I don't think so. I think history is going to forget the internet. Like historically through innovation, uh, there are always these false forks, right? 30, 40, 50 years of kind of inanity before people shape it up. And you know, we've had 40 years of the internet and we'll see this as this weird experiment where we didn't have ownership. And so we've had these bits of digitalization, but it's created this very bad metaverse. And so I think we're rewalking that fork. And when history looks back, you know, there are dozens of renaissances before the last one. It's just that the last one succeeded so thoroughly that it eclipsed all the previous ones. And so 500 years from now, when people say renaissance, I don't think it's hyperbole. I think they'll mean right now today, and we'll see the internet as you know just merely crypto in terms of all creation. Just one last thing. These transformations tend to follow a path. Um, it starts with you know, it's a model, it's a construct, it's not deterministic, but it, it kind of rhymes where things start with finance because there's the most value there, and then they move into art and identity. I don't just mean pixelated cats, I mean like semiotic charge and load and what community you belong to and why, and then into work, you know, DAOs we'd call them today, and then into propagation through education, and then finally this, this interaction with a new and then synthetic. We call it the metaverse, but at the shift in the Renaissance, there was no synthetic before. The idea of reading a book was new to you. So suspending disbelief and changing your locus of where you reside into a virtual world was new at the Renaissance. And that opened up you know, a series of possibilities where you could learn about a new idea, learn how to practice a trade or craft through a synthetic means, and then port that back in the real world to improve your life uh, at whatever social strata you were. And so if things follow that, if things follow that construct, uh, I think we're in the very early days now. Um, so a lot to throw at you, but there you go. Yes, a lot to throw at us. And, you know, given that you're such a, apparently such a super fan of ours, it's uh, pretty cool that you've internalized all of our concepts so rapidly and added a lot, a lot there. That's pretty interesting for me to, for me to go on. It's, um, Great job. Well, I, I often define, like, a certain kind of intelligence as being able to sort of just rapidly synthesize con uh, concepts on the fly and, you very clearly are doing that, not to toot your horn too much. So, yeah, a lot, a lot to go at. So the first thing that comes to me is a lot of the stuff you're talking about is exactly the kind of thing, in my opinion, that if it were – it's the same type of invention that if it happened now, people would be like, all right, but what's the use case? Like double ledger technology doesn't sound – like I could pitch that to Bitchell. And he would say, that just sounds like rich people, like, you know, recording how much money they have yeah. or something like this. Rich people like richer with their numbers, you know. <laughs> exactly. And it, it sounds like you view that as much more transformative. But I think the other thing, and I'll try to phrase this as a question, is it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have this mix of, I guess I could call it technological determinism in the sense that new pieces of technology <laughs> really do uh, constrain and direct history in very specific ways, but also this idea of combination where I think you, it, would it be correct to say that you see it as you do get those built, those trajectories of first finance, then art and identity, then sort of corporate organization. But there seems to be this sort of singularity explosion point that you see when all of them are there. And if that's the case, I, I'd like could you point us at the for those inventions you mentioned in let's say the we're talking about I, I think the thirteen hundred to we're talking about the thirteen hundred to about sixteen hundred period I think can can you tell us at what point you really feel they took off and created sort of you know either a singularity or there was sort of no going back. Oh man, that's a, those are that's a series of uh, let's get, let's uh, go for the, <laughs> the the specific one being what would you identify as 
the, the sort of the period in that time when all of them came together the most in sort of a very powerful, you know, globally affecting kind of way where you feel like this can never be put back in the bag. Yeah, yeah. And obviously I'm biased, I mean, because, you know, looking at this transition between Middle Ages and Renaissance, but I mean, just for full disclosure, the the type of history I did and working at the Institute, it was, it was long durée. It was like uh, early classics in the modern world and uh, world history and what have you. Um, so I'm definitely biased, but I really think that transition between Middle Ages and, uh, and the Renaissance world is super important. And your question kind of gets at this, <laughs> this like what drives history, right? So there's these, there are these different schools of thought and like one that's underappreciated that I, I'm super into is this idea of like demographics, right? Demographics and geography. Mm-hmm. I'm back to your techno determinism mm-hmm. piece. And this demographics, like we, it's the most boring piece of the social sciences. And part of the reason I'm doing this, like I'm not looking for anything deal flow or anything like that. I just, I think like if crypto is about social coordination, the social scientists should be here talking, right? It's just none of them are. So yeah. I guess I'll just step here in the interim. But this idea of like social sciences, particularly the boring stuff, the, the currents under the sea instead of the waves or the ripples on top, like demographics are huge. So everybody talks about AI replacing jobs. Like if you look at the demographics, we're in this like massive free fall, right? Like we're, we're inverting our demographic pyramid globally and here slightly less so. And what that means is not only inflation, but like a lack of, uh, a lack of workers for jobs. So that has like massive technological like implications. How do you solve that? It won't be AI replacing jobs. It'll be, how do you find jobs? And so the reason I mentioned this is like, a third of the American workforce is around enforcing trust, right? And so if you can automate that sort of stuff, and that that demographic analog is very similar to the Middle Ages with a sort of like massive demographic shift. And against that, so these models predict certain things, and we can go into that. Where that school of thought fails is the idea of dynamicism or the idea of innovation, like where can something come to break the model? And that's where technology, it's not necessarily deterministic, it's more of a dialectic. It's fighting against this demographic determinism and geographic determinism, and you have these these technologies that pop on the scene and you can you can kind of quantify those by like what's the nature of the technology some people say like you know the standard investors uh, I won't mention names but the, the really the really well-known ones on Wall Street that do innovative funds and they kind of dabble in crypto they see this period as similar to the 19th century they see it as like cars and telephones and this that and other thing I think that like misses the point that's technology that does this first unfold better faster cheaper like Silicon Valley way, like the second unfold where you use primitives to create different types of innovations that were otherwise unimaginably for, that really comes with, honestly, this ledger-based bookkeeping, which sounds super boring, I'll drill into that in a second, and this decentralized permissionless communication. And both of those being decentralized means, like, one, they have an endemic creative uh, power within the technology itself, which sounds kind of metaphysical, but it's true. Like the printing press communicated these crazy ideas, but it persisted ownership inside them. In medieval, you had like never seen art. You'd never really seen an image. <laughs> you hadn't been to Notre You hadn't seen your uh, reflection in a mirror. You hadn't seen glass. You, you'd barely seen your reflection in a puddle. And now you're confronted with like Cronach and Drewer, and they're showing these like the world as you know it, where you're at the bottom of this cosmic and geopolitical pyramid, right? There's like somebody at the top and then somebody under that and 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 and 50 feet of shit and you looking up and you can't change that, that's your world. And now you see an image and even if you can't read, you're reading it in a community, at a tavern, you're interpreting it and they're saying, hey, 
this authority is illegitimate. Like the question is like, that rocks your world. Like how did that happen? That happened because there was a financial primitive that allowed you to get off the farm and do something with it, follow your vocation. It allowed someone to print this and share it like through a market force, call it proto-capitalism or what have you. And then the technology itself was baked into that communication. This is the, this is the rise of not just McLuhan and like medium as message, but like that literally allowed ideas and information where you could act on that in the real world to change in a fundamental way. So being able to pay for something and being able to have the idea to do it and the information to persist it, those are like qualitatively different technologies, partially because they had this decentralized element. Like they wanted to KYC all the printers and shut it down, right? Cities, <laughs> religious institutions, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But they couldn't do it. It was peer-to-peer. -peer. You couldn't stop it. And so then they're faced, as these new ideas burst forth, like what do you do? Do you ignore them? Of course you try to like you try to like recreate them in your image under this hierarchy, but as soon as you participate in that, as soon as you start printing, you legitimize the the technological medium. And because the technological medium has this decentralized primitive force and this creative dynamic, all of a sudden the means of controlling communication are are broken. And so in one sense it's determinism, but you could like if you're a good German, you could say it's like dialectic, it's like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. The thing I'd like really like, the other thing you said in there that's like super important is uh it's not just arithmetic, it's hyperbolic, right? These things compound. So yeah. if you just had finance and you just had the ability to do these small loans and get off, the, there wasn't enough physical currency, right? Like, so you couldn't create something. It, it was restricted by the, the, the financial uh, like infrastructure at the time. So if you just had that, so what? You'd never have the idea to go out and do something else or that your, your hierarchy is illegitimate or you could join another community or here was another community which had different values. If you just had the communication, you couldn't finance it, much less share it, much less do anything with it at scale. So these two things work together in a virtuous cycle. You can then ask the question, what's different about this time, right? And what's different about this time, this is a great chink in the armor. Like I view history as this pendulum swinging back and forth between aggregation and decentralization. A few centuries, cruft builds up and then institutions crumble and you recreate it. And like the, the, it wasn't just religion at the time. We have this like artificial Kantian like post-enlightenment construct of like religion is my private beliefs and military and political are over here. But for them, it was a combined hierarchy. So when that crumbled, it was chaos. And the point of no return was, you know, historians argue over the date, but it's early 1500s, it's early 16th century, mm. precisely when the institutions of power participated in those instances. It, the aggregation swung back after a hundred, couple hundred years, you started rebuilding it under the guise of like a, a godless hierarchy in terms of nation state. And the chink in the armor was property rights. You could take your currency with you, you could take your ideas with you, but if you wanted property, you had to physically be there in a, in a geographic location. You had to have access to a document which could be precluded, you could have a preclusion from that, had to be interpreted by somebody local in authority. So NFTs, not just as pixelated cats, but as on-chain property rights, for things digital as well as things physical is like a third stool, a third leg to the stool. It's hyperbolic. So that's how I see this, this unwinding differently. That said, the forces of hegemony are like a lot more sophisticated, obviously. So it's, it's, not, that it, it's not that it's deterministic. It's that it's like this, this tension or this firefight constantly. And I'd say early 16th century is when you can now join a new community. 
You can join a new religious community, which means political community, which means you might have to move or you might have to go somewhere else, or you, you can effectively follow these different strategies for interacting with your synthetic community in the real world. This metaverse, it's a show we've seen before, like repeatedly out of the Renaissance, just full disclosure. Wow, that was an um, extremely good answer. And just to sort of play Boswell to Josh's Johnson real quick for our listeners, like <laughs> I, I, just to summarize, I think one thing you're saying here that I hadn't thought of before in this way, even though I'm sort of a, a sort of metaverse uh, bits like maximalist, is uh, the idea that this time period in the late Middle Ages uh, going to the Reformation was in some ways more of a change than the Industrial Revolution because it involved reorganizing what people's minds do and the interactions between them and then linking that to uh, money. And then I think the parallels for how, you know, that relates to the internet right now and connecting money with it are very clear. But I want to I throw it to uh, Bitchell right now because I think he's been waiting to find a lot of questions built up from this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to, to get at you, Josh. Um, one thing I was thinking listening to you speak right here and talking about determinism is this, you know, a Steve Jobs quote that's something like, you can only connect the dots backwards. And it's something I've, I've thought listening to some yeah, of your yeah. other podcast yeah. appearances is there, there's something really powerful about these historical comparisons to something like the Renaissance that we've internalized to some degree that make the current moment feel inevitable. We're drawing all these parallels to something that's already happened. So it feels like, oh, we must be in in this event that is mm. moving towards completion. Something, something I really appreciate yeah. about the way you, you speak about both history and technology is the way you use m metaphorical language, like like KYCing, uh, you know, for printing presses or um, printing mm, being that, that resonated really hard. I think it's it's a really clear way to draw those those parallels and and um, make these connections feel feel clear. But I, I do wonder, do you do you think that we are already in a moment where the the current um, Reformation Renaissance is inevitable? Have we passed the point uh, of ex unstoppable acceleration? Or if not, what are the forces that might make this current Renaissance um, might stop it in its tracks? Is that still possible? Oh, man, this is, yeah, there's this a number of questions in there. This is so good. This reminds me of like a dissertation. To this. This <laughs> yeah, we, just, we, just, we just put all the Ivy League people together and let them go crazy. Yeah, seriously, this is fantastic. Um, yeah, okay, so let me take a, um, so a couple things just for context for like the listeners, right? Like everybody, you always start with what you know and what you remember, right? And like we're, we're victims of our own bias. And so we always, we're egoistic by nature, right? We think our age is the most important age. And we look back and we say, hey, this age is, what can we remember? Oh, it was like the internet two, but better. Oh, it was like the internet one, but kind of different. Oh, it might be like industrialism when, you know, when uh, we had the aggregation like scale, basically. Um, and it's like, okay, that's fine. But like, and this sounds incredibly like, I realize this sounds like hyperbole, but it, I, I firmly believe it to be historically true because of the analogs, like very specific detailed analogs, like literally looking at when I'm looking at like, 
you know, Solidity or Python or Rust or Viper, and I'm comparing that to like, you know, medieval like <laughs> Siglia, it's like, it's very, very similar. And when you graph the social networks, it looks, it looks very similar in terms of this bifurcation of, of their reality. So like, long story short, I think you need to pull your lens back to say, it's not just 19th century, it's when did you have this massive shift, the most recent shift between hegemony and like decentralization and aggregation. And that's like, that's from like the medieval world to the Renaissance world. And like, to your point, like historians are just like, usually as a historian, you have an idea and you have to jam all the data to fit in it. And that's fine. That's how you teach undergrad. That's like, it's fine for explanatory power. It's like, it makes sense. But like this like is natural and it's endemic. But that said, your point is that it's like post facto. It's like, it's true. Like, um, you basically, you don't know how things are going to work. The people at the time, they didn't know whether they were in the Renaissance. They literally thought their world was ending. I can't <laughs> emphasize that enough, right? We think of the Renaissance as like fat cherubs and like Michelangelo, like maybe like a dome. Like the image is like Drewer's apocalyptic dream. They wake up like sweat soaked and think their world is ending and they were right. Their authority figures were crumbling. Their institutions were, were, were splitting apart at the seams. Like their money was like worthless one day, worth something the next day. Their communication, there is multiple truths. So like what, in terms of when you pass the point of no return, um, I kind of view it in a slightly different way. Like what you had in the Renaissance was the advent of like pluralism for the first time. So like said differently, like technology and ideologically wasn't like uniformly distributed. And what I mean by that is even in the modern world, you have societies low technology, you have societies high technology, you have societies in pockets of geography, low finance, high finance. And so what happened in the Renaissance was you had this splitting. You had the opportunity not to like have your stars set, but to join something else. And that came at a cost. Um, you might, you might, <laughs> you might have to try to convince the overlap of you know your geographic political powers or religious powers or community powers. You might be literally ostracized or set out. You might have to travel somewhere else. You might have to like persist like within a community like you know Anon or what have you. But there's the splitting. And among these geographies different people adopted and different communities within the state geography adopted in different ways. And so some of them had a renaissance that was completely different and wild and redefined the nature of what was meaningful. For instance, you know, meaning was, you know, cloistered away and being outside the world. And all of a sudden with the renaissance, like being a entrepreneur and like dealing in the real world with friends and family and community was meaningful for the first time. You see this with like art in the ubiquitous fruit bowl. Other people didn't do that. They persisted as is. They had a counter-reformation or a counter-renaissance. And so you had this, you had a, a proto-Bretton Woods, if you will, right? You had this like friction, basically. And so in some sense, they passed the point of no return, like early 16th century. Once the technology was out of the bag, it was going to split society. The question was, how was that going to play out? Was it going to be a uniform renaissance? Was it going to be a uniform anti-renaissance? Or was it going to be like pluralistic overlap with friction between the two? And that's the latter was how it played out. And so when mm, the question is yeah. like, when do we pass the point of no return? Like we today have this idea of uniformity and like part of it is generational. Like we just, part of it's because the institutions have just like conditioned us to that. There can only be one thing, right? And like you get this zealousness in crypto with chain maximalism and what have you. And that makes sense because you need people on the fringes, like, you know, early on, like on the frontier, like, you know, uh, zealous to actually do what they're going to do. It serves a function. But like the idea is like, usually it doesn't work that way. Usually it's not just one system. Usually it's multiple systems with different values embedded and even people you know, part of this is like legacy identity where I have one identity persisted to me one-to-one, -one, like in a physical world with an SSI number and a physical address. You start to see that splinter in the Renaissance where you can join multiple communities, join multiple communities at the same time. You may have to shift geography. 
And uh, I think we're in like a similar place. The idea of like, when will everything flip? And I'm not saying you're saying this, but you hear this a lot in crypto. It's like a simplistic undergrad model. When will we go into something new? It's like if history rhymes, you'll have a recreation Ooh. of capital begetting capital. You'll have some neo Wall Street, but you'll also have some new stuff you'll take that aggregated distribution curve and redistribute it along esoteric interests and communities and like ideas which now have financial viability. And so I think we've already passed the point of no return. That said, huge qualification. That doesn't mean everything comes up as monoism like in roses. Does that make sense? That's like a yeah, kind of a no, nuanced there, answer. I mean, there's a ton to unpack there as well. And I think, you know, just nowhere around here, um, you know, I'm loving this. This is sort of like a much better research version of sovereign individual, right? With the actual implications to today. It's like taking a thesis that was very interesting in 97 and like not just improving on it massively in the past, but also pulling it into the future and being like, okay, where are we today? You know, 1997 was a long time ago. Um, I'm curious, just, you know, you talked about your combination of value, um, communication and identity. Like, where are we on those three today? Yeah. Like, value, it seems like we have, you know, we have cryptocurrencies. They're obviously popular. Obviously, they're growing in market size. Communication seems like a complex picture. I mean, we're all Urbit Maxis, but I'm curious, you know, like, where overall, like, your sense of where communication is and then that last part on identity. Like, where are we today in this combination? Yeah. Oh, man, you're asking all the... Okay, small question. <laughs> um, so let me, let me hit this... Uh... So old academic in me, you can't beat you can't beat the contextual like layout uh, out of me. So I'm gonna say like all the stuff you're saying is true. We've had like these precursors, right? We've had we've had we've had digitalization without ownership. So we've had this false yeah. fork. We've had this re-syntheticization, just like at the Renaissance. I can disassociate my physical reality from where my mind goes. I can learn things outside of a geographic space. We underestimate that the Rena that the Renaissance like gave rise to like the metaverse and received a ton of critique on very similar lines we see today. So we have this like idea that's happened and like a lot. A lot of the criticism that we see in media's message and McLuhan and Baudrillard and hyperreal, the image being more real than the thing is a negative thing, I think is a fundamental critique of this false fork that we're now backtracking. So you have sovereign individual, you have fourth turning, you have Peter Zion stuff, you have, I mean, uh, uh, network state, all these ideas, and they're all getting at something. You can critique any one of them, but they're like they're getting at the idea that this false yeah. fork is like going to shift, that the institutional cruft is going to dissolve. They all view it through the first unfold, right? So they say, hey, what's the future like? Well, it's like the thing we used to know. We're like Victorians sitting around in a mansion where we have our sitting parlor and our eating <laughs> parlor and our talking parlor. And so we view the future through that lens we know. And like innovation, change tends to happen in these twofold models. Like the first is better, faster, cheaper, total addressable market, like aggregation, maximalism. And then the second is like this unfold of like something that was otherwise unimaginable. So where are we right now? We're in like the better, faster, cheaper like function of this, right? And like we're just we're just now building the primitives on a variety of chains. Like we're just now saying, hey, you know what would be cool? Maybe a social graph. Maybe that'd be helpful. Or we're saying, hey, what would be cool? Like messaging in a wallet basically, right? That'd be a good idea. And so the, the thing about that is, so that's very early on, you build those primitives. And the early intelligentsia, like you guys, you can see the use cases for that, right? You can see, like if I'm lecturing, I show students, I Google a, an, I, I Google a concept, right? And then I do it through a decentralized VPN, and I do it through DuckDuckGo, and they're like, oh, holy frick, these results are very different. And it's like, yes, you see an Overton window. You see through a window that maximizes somebody else's benefit from your time and attention, right? It didn't even occur to like, medieval you that that was possible. And so only right now to be able to replicate that, 
You need fundamentals. You need social graph. You need messaging hardwire. You need an open index to be able to see that. Like in one of our early companies, we built on some of the big Fang uh, protocols when they had open graphs, and then they shut it down, right? But the idea of being able to do that, being able to say, hey, if I have an open index and open graph, these things are available. Like right now, there's even persistent you know, uh, state archiving, you know, Arweave and stuff. Like they put the out library of Alexandria on it as like the first act, right? Like if I have that index, then I can say, then I can start building things that benefit me. I want to see algorithms this way. I want to see search that prioritizes this thing. You unlock a new type of capitalism to do that. But you need the fundamentals. You need the graph. And then the unglamorous, unsexy thing that everybody ignores is the broadcast layer. Like, how are you going to access that? You're going to access that through iOS. You're going to access that through Verizon. So this idea of like the broadcast layer of Web3, or call it whatever you want to call it, like on top of the indexing. And we're starting to see that come on as well. Those were things like you know uh, proof of coverage or geographic, like peer-to-peer -peer broadcasting, IoT or 5G. Now we're seeing like a million of those units globally. China's trying to crack it down. And so said differently. There'll never be another Arab Spring. They know how to cut that cord. That's not happening again. So you have to mm. rebuild the fundamentals, the messaging, the social graph, the algorithmic archive and indexing, as well as the broadcast layer. And like we're early in all of those buckets if you map it out, but we haven't yet like nailed down the UI UX. And then one other thing too, not everybody adopted the Renaissance. People, people were very happy in medieval hierarchy. It was like the safe trade to make. If you play it forward into the revolution, like the, the American Revolution was a bunch of you know degenerates that got kicked out and couldn't persist anywhere and chose to like risk life and limb to to get out of like their current system, like shades of the shades of the Renaissance. But not every Everybody made that choice. The safe trade was to stay where you are. There's a ton, and part of this is demographical or generational demographics, like leapfrogging, like boomer to millennial, Gen X to Gen Z, where they persist. They, if you talk to most people, they'll say, hey, we like banking. It's safe, right? FDIC, doesn't matter if it's never paid out a claim. Or they say, all this regulation, that helps us, that protects us. Like, that's the dominant narrative. And so the idea of unlocking capitalism where you can go out and pursue what you like to do and what you're good at. That's not for everybody, and so part of it is a technological mm. curve to solve, and yeah, part it, of it is a part of it I honestly think is a generational curve too. Yeah, I agree. It's sort of. I mean, I used to work in healthcare tech, and there was this idea that like um, doctors never actually changed their behavior. Like the only time there was actually change in the healthcare system was because new doctors with different education were coming died. through. Yeah, oh. basically when they died, I, I see something really similar in gold, right? Where it's like the people who are into gold, you know, my grandfather, for example, um, he wasn't, he was never going to change his mind at like 93 about gold. He was all in on gold. And I see this too with like Gen X. So there's this idea, Josh, that I think kind of connects to like your kind of like your cycle of how the change works its way through. It like starts with money and that kind of seems to affect, seems to affect younger generations, right? Like a lot of people in crypto are under 30 and they have very different opinions. Um, so that's, that's a really interesting topic there. I also just wonder, like, how stoppable is this now? Like, how, what's your sense of can this be stopped? You were talking about kind of peer-to-peer. -peer, and I'm just looking at, like, you know, peer-to-peer -peer happening in Nigeria, India. I'm in Argentina right now, and, like, there's so much peer-to-peer -peer crypto. Like, no one actually cares about the next IMF uh, regulations in Argentina. Mm. It's all peer-to-peer -peer anyway. So I'm curious, like, how stoppable mm. is this? And you guys have loaded up the question. Okay, so um, sorry to keep saying this. It's, like, usually interviews are like, hey, uh, this is not the usual like conversation. So let me, uh, <laughs> we, we, hold, like, we hold ourselves well, to, to a very high standard. Let me, yeah, let me take a step back and like, uh, for, all right. So, 
if you, if you buy into this model of like these five buckets where you go into finance, then you go into art and identity, then you go into work and you go into education, and then you go into this unfold of something new, the first is this finance, which on one hand, like that gets a, that biases a lot. That's like a lottery ticket. I'm buying a coin. I'm trading it. I just see crypto as that. I don't see this community or identity or creation or blah, blah, blah. That's like where we are, right? Um, and then, so part of that is like it biases the whole thing that way. Um, so it could just get stopped there. Like also said differently, just like I said in this long distribution curve where you take TAM out of the head of the curve, you know, it's 80% owning, 20% of the people owning 80% of the assets where FANG operates as a bigger economy than most nation states, right? Like you, you, you take those pieces out and now all of a sudden you can fund your esoteric interests or communicate community like by pulling that value out of there. And so in that sense, like, it's decentralized peer-to-peer -peer individual interests, but also like having a capitalistic driver basically, and even venture in some cases, like it's never like a spectrum. It's always enemy and my enemy is my friend, right? I used to work in healthcare data too. And so like the idea was, can you trick people into doing the right thing, right? And you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, there's a like, lot of that, there a lot these, of that. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And if you get into like, I'll just run with this healthcare thing just for one second. If you look at what drives like US healthcare like spend, it's because it's a supply driven market. There's decades of research out of Harvard and Dartmouth where they literally map it, Dartmouth Atlas for Unwarranted Variation. They say, hey, supply drives demand. Gambling, pornography, and healthcare, that's what goes on. You can literally map it. If I have three orthosurgeons in this geography, I have three times as many of these surgeries, right? It's literally supply yeah. driving demand. And so regardless of where you are. And so like you can't kind of shift that, right? Like the capitalistic, the incentives are perversely in line. And so you have to basically like realign those incentives. And so like you start with finance, you get a bad driver on that. Like, can you trick basically like big money into helping you? But can you also like work at the same time with like peer to peer money, like working? That's like, that's one specific part of it. I, I think it's already past the point of no return. The question is what kind of renaissance is it going to be, right? Is it going to be wholly dystopian? Is it going to be wholly roses? Or is it going to be wholly like split or pluralistic where some people do, some geographies do good things in good ways. Some geographies do bad things in bad ways. And when I say geography, I don't just mean nation. I mean like the unit of analysis might be city, region, geographic. And then if you chart it out and you say, hey, what are the entities? What are the size you're playing for in this like forking American code base, what are the, what, what is the real rub? What will get me to do something different? Is it just driving a Lambo? Not, I'm not, not me, but like, is it, is it reducing friction of like dealing with these like institutions, right? Like, oh yeah, I'll sign up all day long to like not have this friction here basically. And so like part of it is like, how are you going to split who's going to drive, what makes somebody adopt something? And like, that isn't set. And like, if I had to predict, I'd say we're past the point of no return, but not in terms of the monoism. I think there's going to be fractures geographically and within countries and within communities. Mm. So you mean that tech is beyond the point of no return, like that combination of sort of money and information. Tech is beyond the point of no return. Yeah. yeah and the idea of you having a choice now, not everybody, but early adopters. Um, it's not going to be virtuous versus like nefarious. It's going to be it's going to be a multiple layer. Think of it as like a layer cake, right? It's like enemy of my enemy is my friend, basically. Geographically, maybe, just even think of Bretton Woods, right? It's like, it's not poor, rich, first world, second world. It was us 
versus them and then guns for butter, everybody else hopping on. Like That's one way to think of how this plays out. The text passed the point of no return, digital centralized currency, everybody hop on and pure KYC, complete anon, mixers, blah, 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 and then everybody like hopping on different sides and different use cases and different design spaces, a much more complex and, mosaic. And when you, you say enemy of my enemy is my friend, just to paraphrase, see if I've got it, I think what you're saying is that once you're past, as we say here, the point of no return, you have enough sort of economic social energy in let's call it you know the crypto space to start being like you know be able to like create various alliances or play things off each other or provide value to a certain region or something and then you'll get adopted by you know in some sense like an area that needs you in order to not have to do kyc or to be the enemy of that in some sense is that roughly what you're saying yeah, yeah. You can think of it just brute force, poli-sci thing, mm -hmm. you know, nation versus nation, who lines up. But you could also think of it, and it might, I'm just using mo money and KYC, but you could, you could apply it to communication. Like, what's the use case, right? Yeah. Like, well, I want to search the information and I want to have it persist. Um, and I don't want to do it through a geographic filter where it's a, my enemy in that sense is like Google on their algorithm, right? Mm. So now I have access to an open index protocol well, there's geographies that don't want to incentivize that, right? And there's synthetic communities that don't want to incentivize that. And so I might be misaligned with somebody else here on fiscal policy. They're not pure-blooded Austrian economics. Okay, fine. But they, they want to give me access to be able to search a, an algorithm and build a business on finding the right stuff, stuff that I, doesn't benefit Fang. Oh, now I'm into I that. I saw exactly this the other day when people were, I think it was Suzu on Twitter, uh, get really good like, getting into being able to use stable diffusion for free and not having to go through the gatekeepers at Google or whatever. And I don't know that the people yeah. releasing stable diffusion line up with, you know, her on everything related to crypto and such. But there was this like moment where they sort of find an alignment because they both want to do just like, you know, random AI art and not have that be permissioned by, you know, ethical gatekeepers at Google or something. Um, but I want to throw it over to Bichel, because I think he's been waiting here for a while with some stuff. Well, I, it's interesting to hear you uh, talk about alliances and the way those come together, because it kind of brings me back to um, Urbit, which I've been thinking about through this conversation. I think Urbit is a really interesting alliance of a bunch of people who are come across a wide variety of um political spectrums and backgrounds, but are united in a particular way, particularly around these themes you've been discussing of um, distributed communication, peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, and the idea of reducing friction yeah. and um, realigning in incentives. It seems to speak to a lot of the, the issues that you're concerned with, Josh. So, you know, I'll, I'll, this podcast, you know, where we got together via Urbit, and I know that you have some interest as well. So I'm, I'm curious sort of what you think of where Urbit is at right now and what role it might play in uh, this larger crypto Web3 distributed technology revolution that we're going through. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. Um, this gets in. I'm going <laughs> to. All right. So one, just a bit of context and like my, my framework for even thinking through the question, like this idea of enemy of my enemy is my friend. I might, I might use, I might, you know, partner or use somebody's code base or like work with a community, even if I'm not aligned with all of their goals or values, but because on this access, like they want, they want to reduce friction for building or they want like peer-to-peer -peer computing or they want whatever it is, right? This like idea of ideological purity on all points. This is like, this is a Mac, some, 
this isn't related to Urbit, but on like the layer one side, you get people like, hey, if everybody adopts my layer one, the values are contained, then everybody gets along, and then we enter this post-millennial utopia, and like we're all holding hands and doing a Coke commercial. It's like that's that's not the way like that that tends to work out in history. The way it tends to work out like in reality, and like the smartest communities that were either persecuted or trying to like build something new and face like institutional hegemonic forces, basically did this enemy, my enemy is my friends thing, where they said, here's my bucket of five points I'm really into. We have our core community. Like who else can we work with with like to be able to accomplish those goals, right? And the idea is you're not diluting yourself and your energy and your capital. You're betting on your own technology and community. Like that's the thing nobody yes. understands, right? Yes. Like in terms of just like technology and capitalism. Like if you try to explain it to Web2 guys, like imagine you could cut and paste Google's code base and fork it, right? Like, oh, frick, like, where's the value of that? And that sounds crazy, but, like, open source software, like, runs 80% of, like, the dollars in the U.S., like, right? And nobody's paid for that. So, like, this stuff already works. We just haven't captured the value on it. And so we're already doing these experiments. So I don't, like, get how, it's like, well, how can I take these pieces and align it? And so this idea of working with somebody outside my ideological purity test to accomplish my goals and betting that my technology and my community, not just code, but also the people who make it, have this endemic creative power. I'm like betting that they don't rub off on me, but that like I create and I unlock and decentralization wins. Like that's like a, a, a fundamental concept even kind of thinking through this. And so in terms of like orbit along those lines, um, it's like, it's definitely like super interesting. It's probably the best like pure play computational piece. The thing right now, if you ask most people outside, and I'm polychain, I'm into Urbit's interesting, but I'm super old, so I still use MySpace, but like I'm, I'm into, <laughs> Whoa, that's, you know. that's still possible? We found him. We yeah, uh, it's like they shut down the they shut down the email server on that recently. Those guys are killing me. Um, we did a big MySpace deep dive on the on the last episode, so I'm glad to. Oh, did you really? Oh, yeah, I didn't hear <laughs> that one. That's great. No, that's a, so, like, you have this niche of like really interesting community and culture. You have this like idea of like the purest play expression of all these things. Um, but like the interesting part about it is how do you bring in capitalism, right? And like not, it's easy to say, oh, venture's bad, blah, blah. And I'm not saying you should take venture, but like there has to be a reason why somebody like uses this to create it and unlock it. And like, just as an example of that, you might not dig Solana, but like being able to like use Rust as a coding language that you use on a mobile stack so you mm -hmm. don't have to go through iOS or Verizon on a Helium network. You might say, I hate those guys. I don't like the colors. They're all a bunch of Miami bros. But like the idea of not being beholden to their mobile stack and being able to, for me to put in, or I might port like a social graph in, or I might like those ideas of like rapid like spacing and unlock, I think is is super important. So I think Urbit's super interesting. The question is like, how do you interact with it? Might not be capitalism as the driver, but if you map it out, like what's the driver that gets people to do things? And like for, for intelligentsia, like you're like, hey, I can live anywhere, I can do this stuff, find cool people. But like outside of that, like what's the it kind of gets down to existential questions. Like, are you happy with a renaissance that has a hundred thousand people and you're hanging out? I am. That's like catnip to me personally. Mm -hmm. But yeah. like, or do you want like you know, <laughs> millions of people? Or is it okay to have both? Could you carve it out in a construct where you actually had both? Like, I think those are like the existential questions to kind of think through. So TLDR, Urbit's super interesting. It's almost like a rep, it's like a Petri dish, not just of governance, but how it interacts with like adoption forces and like what kind of bets you guys want to make. And part of that is like, Part of that is like where you come from, right? So like Bitcoin has its origin story and like Ether is building for nuclear proof, what have you. Like Solana is like, give me capitalism now. And then there's other esoteric like pieces on there. And so like part of the beauty of history is like 
it, it helps you see you and your community for like who you are as a function of like where you came from. So I think that's the thing to think through. It's like you're onto something super cool. Like how important is adoption? What kind of adoption? And can you have pluralistic adoption as well? Mm. And what do you think are like, I think in a previous podcast, might have been <laughs> sorry, that's, I threw out like a ton of stuff. Sorry. Yeah, that no, was like I love a ton it. I love it. Uh, I mean, I was, we all kind of expected that given your previous two hour interviews had so much to dig into. Um, so, but I'm just curious, like you talked about capitalism and I think in Bankless, you had talked about capitalism 2.0. What is kind of like, what are the new ways we can unleash capitalism? I think one you had talked about before is sort of fractionalized ownership. And like, I, I just found those ideas really interesting. So could, could you kind of like go down, like what is fractionalized ownership there? What are some kind of general tools um, ways to unleash capitalism today that we couldn't before crypto. Oh man, and this this has implications for Urbit and how you guys want to like craft the road. Okay, so every like media major graduating out of Ivy League now comes and they're working for you know a crypto thing and like capitalism is bad. I have a new idea for like you know a neo Marxism or whatever, or a capitalism is good. It's like this idea of just pure binary like. There are different flavors. Like one thing that you see in history is like this pluralistic construct is like there's always a spectrum. And in different use cases, in different mm -hmm. design spaces, in different contexts, some things are good, some things are bad. Sometimes they might be used to accomplish a goal. So when I say capitalism, like the type of capitalism that came out of the Renaissance was like was not necessarily the TAM smashing. And just so everybody knows what I say, when I say total addressable market, all of Web 2.0, all of post-industrialization, post-70s, when we started baking in growth assumptions as a function for like continuance like as community is around TAM. That's the only way you do it. Total addressable market mm -hmm. needs to increase. And so if you visualize a curve, you have you know Pareto principle, a few people owning everything, and then this long tail of all this stuff. Web 2 is designed and industrialization is designed to smash that tail of the curve into one big bucket and one big bar. And that means everybody kind of sees the same stuff, Everybody thinks the same way. Everybody has access to the same pieces. And the technology of digitalization that on one hand, it's open. You can go find anyone, you know, even on Twitter, what have you. But you have to swim against the algorithm to really do it, right? They make it tough for you to do that, if you can at all. And like, that's going to be closed for you. And so like, that's kind of capitalism gone down a false fork. Like capitalism at the Renaissance was... This it, historians call it proto-capitalism, although it's funny in the future, like until we have like digitalization and ownership, future historians may say all this was proto-capitalism until mm. now, honestly. But the idea is that capitalism, it didn't mean you had to build a mega corporation and persist in that. It literally meant that you weren't part of this old hierarchical like construct, which we didn't call it the company then. We called it, it was some other institution, you know, became uh, religio, cultural, to nation state, to like, uh, to partisan equity. And every time you have an unlock decentralized, it always ticks back. So like when you had birth of the company, everybody went apeshit when that happened, right? Oh, you can own a bit of a stock. Oh, that's horrible. Retail went crazy. They thought it was awful. They thought it was indemnity for the people building the railroads, um, et cetera, et cetera. But then it unlocks all this economic growth, right? And then you might not be subsistence farming. You can participate in it. But you go forward a couple hundred years and like all of a sudden you're re-aggregating and like recrafting. And so like this idea of capitalism in a decentralized perspective is you don't have to participate in aggregation, whether that's medieval aggregation or capitalistic fang-based TAM smashing aggregation. You're actually free to pursue your, voc uh, you know, the Reformation would have called it vocation. You can call it calling or you can call it whatever you want to. But the idea is like what you like 
and what you're good at doing, what creates value for you and your neighbor. And in a TAM-based world, where all those esoteric interests and communities get smashed into one thing, well, I can communicate, but I can't finance my life that way, right? I can do stuff on media. I don't get paid for likes or for listens, so I gotta, I gotta have a side hustle here where I monetize it through consulting or through Patreon or whatever. Like Now, all of a sudden, if I actually own those tools, if my cost centers become revenue-generating, bookmark that, I'll say something about that in a second, then all of a sudden I can pursue super esoteric interests, academic, highbrow, lowbrow, what have you. And so like, that's the idea of capitalism, being like, free to like, pursue. It's very Weberian, I'm aware of the critiques and the counter critiques, like this like, you know, capitalism and the Protestant spirit and work ethic, blah, blah, blah. But that's the, the idea, I'm not beholden to hegemony where I'm told what I must do, I have access to uh, finances that allow me to pursue things. Now I have communication with this giant false fort because I couldn't own my communication, so I couldn't build anything based on that or in a synthetic world. And now I can. And so that long tail of esoteric interests, like the, the practical application is take everything you do that you spend money on, whether you know it or not. And what I mean by that is maybe you're paying nine bucks a month for a subscription. Maybe it's free, but they're like harvesting your data, right? Data is this new gold, but you don't own it. You're giving it away. Data built the modern economy and you don't own the stuff that you create. They're like a medieval lord harvesting your time and attention. Now you own that. Maybe it's not just digital. Maybe it's physical. I pay rent. I pay a mortgage. Go find the ownership protocol of every one of those things. So like a super specific example. This is, an, I'm sitting here in an old, uh, you know, an old bourbon bar from turn of the century, and it was a drug den. Multiple heroin fires, burned out, blah, 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 slated for mini storage, right? We ran a IoT, 5G, like proof of coverage, proof of physical work, which is interesting, like two-way door between synthetic and real. And like you literally take your rent and you're broadcasting a signal where you're getting paid for that. Or you do a coffee shop. Well, Spotify's nine bucks for you, but if you run anything in public, the BMI lawyers are knocking on your door for their 15K. You run Audius, or you run Computing, or Arweave, or Render. You literally make a list of every single thing you pay for, whether you know it or not, and you say, hey, how can I turn my cost center into revenue generation where I own the protocol? In the digital world, you can do the same thing too. When we did our first startup, we're so old it was mainframes. Then the second startup was AWS and a LAMP stack, and that went from hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands. Now I can actually use the protocols for computing where I have ownership in it. Urbit, for example, other things as well. And so now I can build a digital product where I actually own the means of communication and computing. So too the physical world, which gets like really interesting in terms of physical unlocks and this geographic overlay. So I might not be able to do it in SF or NYC, but I can do it in like El Salvador. I mean, we did it in like middle of Kentucky nowhere, right? Like that geographic yeah. arbitrage. I mean, honestly, it's, it's the arbitrage is really like between New York and somewhere else, right? There's such a, like Kentucky has a huge arbitrage on that as well. <laughs> No, it's true. This is like a neighborhood community. Uh, like we do some nonprofity stuff, but it's also like crypto education and EDU. And then we have offices up here for an event music space, right? And it's like we couldn't have done that in New York. And it was like off a $500, like turn your rev your cost center into revenue. And so that's one way to do it. If you get ownership in the stuff, can you actually build a business or change your lifestyle economics fundamentally by owning the stuff that you produce? And it's early but you can make a list and do that, and you might be surprised. Like that lets you not only like go code in like Kiev or like go. You don't have to teach English in Korean anymore, right? You can literally say, "What business do I want yeah. to do?" And what if all my cost centers turn to revenue generation? Then, if I want to run a coffee shop dedicated to like you know uh, Wendell Berry and super esoteric interests, well, if I'm making money 
off the space doing geographic proxy on a protocol, then I can have free coffee for anyone into Wendell Barrow who can cite a verse, right? Super esoteric interest. I mean, this is great because you're sort of naturally uh, pivoting into exactly what I wanted to talk about, which is I, some of the stuff you said on your previous podcast appearances about like participating to earn and blue collar crypto, which were phrases mm. I hadn't heard it thrown about before. And I think, I think really gets that what you were bringing up earlier about an existential question about some of what we're talking about requires visualizing the, the universe that you want to live in, what version of the, the crypto revolution exists mm. and how do you help bring it about? And I think you make a really convincing argument that this comes about for um, your average person on a set of daily choices that it's mm. choosing Web3, choosing to participate in owning these things in your regular life. And that's how you begin to accumulate, um, you know, wealth, reputation, understanding in these spaces when you're not someone who is necessarily, you know, going to go out and, and found, you know, crypto infra. So I, I'm, oh, it's so good. yeah, it's I, so I'm good. curious, you know, what, like, you know, if we, we have our Wendell Berry bookstore owner, and, um, you know, maybe you're using the space to, to route something for helium and making some money. But what about um, people, you know, like the, the welder, a construction worker, is someone who in much, much of their life really doesn't touch the digital world or our current bad metaverse. Is crypto going to reach them in a meaningful way or is it a matter of them reaching out to find it on their own? Oh, man, that's so good. So it's like, I think it's both. Let me just walk through like one example of like the possibility of like bleeding something out, which we don't have in terms of like, before we get to the welder, like you're an entrepreneur, right? Like, and, and just for full disclosure, we're on, the, we, we don't run other people's money and we're VC, we're just our own little family thing where we, we raised our own stuff and do our own stuff. But we do know the institution's super well and the venture capitalists and like we run retail and we run the tech and index and validate. So we're, we're kind of like multiple perspectives on this. So let me hit it in a couple different ways. Like if you are tech minded and you want to build something super interesting, like bleed out like what happens when you actually get a social graph, like on like Urban even, right? And like, say uh, it's not just POAP of attendance, but maybe it's experience or it's expertise. So I can not only find people with skills, but it's almost seen like a GitHub repository. Oh, Michelle, like he had, I can literally see like weighted I, I can put on different filters on this graph and build different discovery mechanisms for different things. These are different capitalistic use cases that are like super easy, honestly, compared to like doing it on web two where I'm, where I'm spinning up Lambos and knitting together like relational stuff, like old school. Like I can actually do all this cool stuff. And like now I'm owning Urbit instead of like paying AWS for a Lambda or whatever, right? Like now the world's my oyster to do all this stuff. And like, that's the unlock that I, I can't yet imagine. I haven't been able to do that because I'm forced to use like, you know, Google or LinkedIn or whatever. So like for anyone on the tech world, the bar, the delta between mainframe into LAMP stack and AWS, where it used to cost me several hundred to spin something up and now it cost me a couple thousand. And now it costs me like almost nothing to be able to do it outside of time and experimentation. I can't emphasize that enough. Like you actually own the fruits of that. So that's like massive unlock in terms of that. Participating in that, like, like even this building, like you can say healing, but everybody can go through and say like, hey, what are the cost centers that I actually do? And then what are the web three alternatives? And like most of those have a no coding, like relatively easy-ish UI UX, where I can literally go through and say, instead of paying 15K to BMI, I basically run Audius. Instead of, I have an extra computer I'm running like my POS on, and so I'm gonna have Phantom in there and auto stake it. I can literally go through and say like, these are revenue generation, like relatively easily. If you're a small business owner, you're already doing this on a crappy 
crappy Web2 basis or a crappy metaverse basis. So I can literally switch that over. For the welder, it's like you get into something like super interesting, right? Like we, it's funny, this is like an academic sin that like everybody's guilty of. Like we think these guys are like schmoes, right? It's like they're the ones who didn't take on student debt and are earning six figures and like they're running, they're running customer CRM better than we ever did, right? Yep. <laughs> My plumber had like three houses and a lot of crypto. So we're now getting to the point where the Web3 stuff is as easy to use or is starting to be as easy to use as the Web2 stuff, and you own pieces of that, which isn't phase one buying a lottery ticket for a coin, but at a minimum is saying, I no longer as a coffee shop owner have to pay 15K to BMI. I just reduce that, right? And now all of a sudden I made it through the pandemic and I can hire an extra barista, right? Like, so there's stuff like that immediately, but your core question, what you really get into, which is like interesting, is like, does it actually benefit them? Like how, like... Eventually, this will all be baked up easily, and they'll be able to use it, and it'll be better. It might not be paying for a house, but it'll pay for their Wi-Fi, but it'll change their like life. But it kind of comes down to like early you and what you want to do. During the pandemic, some people took stimulus, and they, they went out and they bought a car. Like We have some neighbors that got out of the city and bought a little tiny, like like not even a farm at the time, and then turned that into a local... It depends on what you want to do with it. And so like this is very similar to the Renaissance. The adoption curve is like asymmetric. Like the, the Medici were nobodies. They were hicks out in the south of France until they discovered this thing. And like one generation later, they're running the, the throne of France and they have the papal seat, right? And it's not mm -hmm. like they're buying their way into culture. They're using it to redefine what's meaningful. And so like all that information for you, the former agricultural labor, you can now go down to a tavern. Somebody's reading like a Luther broadsheet saying like, you don't need to stay on that farm. You can go out and do something. And by the way, God's not going to get pissed at you if you leave a monastery. You can go out and like set up a print shop and that's a good noble thing to do. Here's a loan. You're like, oh, frick, are you going to do it or not? Like the key to that is it's not even a capital block. It's like the idea of that block, like especially in crypto where asymmetric gains said differently to like beat a market you actually have to like get in on big on something earlier bet against it and so like that means everybody's an entrepreneur the biggest delta and this gets into a bit of the new type of capitalism stuff as a venture capitalist like i used to see stuff that's like you're not gonna see i see volatility and code that like you'll never see and like for a decade i have to hold it and it's complete batshit insanity and then after a decade it pays off like imagine if you get to see like google when it's like in a garage or a decentralized google when it's in a garage and the community's exposed. Oh, shit. As a, as a founder, I would have hated that. That would have driven me nuts. Oh, my code base is exposed. Oh, frick. And by the way, I have a stock price on my startup on day one. It's going to be volatile as frick. And so to bet against the market, that means retail, you're going to have to get act. Eventually, it'll benefit the welder and blah, 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 like them disproportionately compared to the kid who's like racked up student debt. But like initially, there is an execution play for early adoption, and that's just being exposed to it. And that kind of comes down to volition and like what you really want to do. You now have access to stuff that venture capitalists couldn't have imagined five years ago. And so when everyone's bitching and saying, oh, this chain went down, like, what do you do with it? Like, even early on when Twitter went down and we saw fail well all the time, I doubled down on it, right? Most people wouldn't do that. I'm not saying yay for me, but you need to read people's actions differently. And that's where, like, a boutique, quote, unquote, esoteric community and doing it together can be super powerful. Okay. Does that make sense? No, it, it does. And I think like one thing I hadn't considered before on the, let's, you know, call it the welder question is what um, Nilrana and Bitchell mentioned, which is that like um, a lot of these guys and girls are actually already doing sort of entrepreneurial activities and investment and just increasing the surface area of that in new ways. Like 
unlocks something that they're already trying to do, just puts it in different forms besides just like real estate or something. But while while we were going on that, when you mentioned uh, you know the Medici's being uh, you know these hicks from southern France, which actually I did not know that and did not know how. Uh, By the way, every historian is going to go crazy when I say uh, that. I mean, there's like qualification, qualification, qualification. So, but it's regardless true. of qualification, um, and also like I was actually yeah sort of sort of blindsided because I wasn't aware of. I think at least there was a, a fast rise, and for mm-hmm. us who are more or less definitely Nilrun and I, um, extremely ambitious people. Uh, I think, like, you know, a, a big attack. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> wants to, like, hike and, like, not have to, like, think about how to buy I'm a I'm ambitiously money. hiking you know, um, for my internal you know, spirituality. <laughs> but, yeah, for the more, like, you know, Machiavellian will to power types in here, I think the, like, appealing thing about the frontier uh, is, you know, the the ability to drastically change your social status and make a different bet than, you know, some of your peers of similar talent did. And so my question is, both in the recent past and kind of going forward, uh, you know, maybe even as an investor, uh, what types of personalities and skill sets do you see making those Medici-like rapid jumps uh, in terms of uh, power status, control over resources uh, in this, we'll say, you know, new inevitable world oh man that's (laughs) this is the craziest set of questions i've ever had in like an hour like back after back that's like sorry you keep saying that but every one of these usually there's like a down question where it's like all right so first like contextually like i just can't emphasize enough like the disjunction and the not just the slippage but the friction between between like power and status and like finance and the ability to do what you want to do like even if you want to use a renaissance example like the Medici and all this, obviously, like historians will qualify it and say, "Hey, none of this was new." Yes, of course, that was a Renaissance program. Back to the sources, ad fontes, double entry bookkeeping had been in North Africa, like printing from China. All that's true. Sure, the question is, like, why? Why did it take off then? Like, right? And so, like, even one example of that, like, the Holy Roman Empire, Maximilian, he wants to like get married. He doesn't have money for like clothes, basically, right? He doesn't have coin. He tries to get a loan from Fugger, like Jacob Fugger, and he won't give it to him, right? Like, that's the like, just like let that like sink in, right? The idea of, like, the guy from nowhere without a noble title, like, dominating the, like, pinnacle of, like, military, political, like, power at the time, right? So this idea of, like, slippage between these two worlds, like, is really, really important. And, like, why I mention that is that the welder who hasn't tread the institutional path is in a much better position than the Ivy League grad who's, like, going to the corner office to take advantage of the disruption, uh, the recreation of the world, right? It has to do with, like, proxy to institutionalism. The welder already takes risks, right? She's bet on herself, right? She's she's much more likely to know the newest software to help her business because she's going to take advantage of that. And, like, that might... I mean, I know welders here in Louisville, they're running Hive Mapper, right? So as they're driving around job to job, they're, like, replacing Google Maps. They're like, they're wired to that small business entrepreneurialism. And there's like, there's like American spirit analogs you could get into, but like versus like the guy, the guy who's like sitting in the corner office and like beholden to the institution and trying to retire, he's like in the least, he's 
everything he's seen in terms of communication, in terms of his daily interaction, in terms of his communities interacting with, it's all like running against it, right? And so in terms of like will to power and who takes over and who does what, the person that has the least institutional attachment, that is the most autonomous, the most sovereign individual, the ubermensch, if you want to get into that sort of stuff, yeah. like they, it tends to like reverse and inverse the social standing. And so like what happens as a result of that, you have this immovable object and like irresistible force like happening, right? You have TAM aggregation and like federal consolidation of like power over, it doesn't matter on what administration, like over time versus this like decentralized like opportunity to be able to find your thing. On a social media sense, it's like Twitter's a great example of that. You can literally get out. You want to do a startup? Oh, you have to do a pitch contest through somebody? No, you can literally go on Twitter find highest performing like venture capital. They're tweeting, who's doing this project? I will give you money. The foundation will give you money today. You can mm. literally find that. So for people interested in that, you can bypass the whole pitch song and dance and da 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 da. That's similar to like welding versus like blue collar guy in finance. And so the least, the less institutional like baggage you have, and by institution you can use the same five buckets, financial, like art and identity, like work, educational, and even like this like synthetic versus IRL, like, you know, property rights is bi-directional doorways allowing you to work in the digital, like enjoy the fruits and the physical or vice versa. Like your opportunity is like to find vocation. Like Ubermensch isn't like, you know, slapping people around. It's like, I have this interest. I'm super interested in this interest, like, and I want to pursue it as like my vocation. I want to get paid to do the thing I like. How freaking crazy is that? To us, it's crazy, but that was like what drove the Reformation dream, right? We sit around like Victorians and we're like, I work my crappy day job and then I do my interest in the side and then I donate over here to this cause. Like, what if it's all the same thing? Like in a TAM world where all my money is in the same thing and that part of the distribution curve, I can't do that. But like if all of a sudden I don't need 10,000 people or 1,000 people, even 100 people, and we own the means of communication, the means of computing, to use Marxist language, the means of like community, all of a sudden those become financially viable to where I can like pursue my calling and have it as an economic job. Like if I want to maximize for like maybe not for finance, but it's not just a side gig or a lifestyle business, it can be more lucrative than doing like the, the shitty office job. Like that's the opportunity and the people best captivated to take advantage of that are those who are like happier to bet on themselves, which sounds like, which is what all the institutionalism and like industrialization is, uh, has trained us not to do. But it sounds like there's, what you're saying is that even aside from, you know, the necessary talent and things like that, there's this sort of, I don't know, like, constant readiness you need that can't involve being attached to the prior world and then pro like probably along with that one sort of unlock you get is if you can sustain yourself economically or have stuff pushing you know pushing forward you'll be more able to take advantage of those things as arise and will be more able to i guess we could call it deinstitutionalize and not have to be tied up there yeah, it's uh, betting, disassociation from institutionalism and also back to that like betting against the market where everybody piles on and hates this other thing. If I just, if you just wanted to make money, you not financial advice, you would run an index fund just on Twitter sentiment. And when it's positive, you short. And when it's negative, you buy. And you'd, yeah. like, you'd rake it freaking, you can do retrospective analysis. And so the idea is, but in the moment, like, do you have the, in, the, do you have the intestinal fortitude, put it in Nietzschean terms or put it in capitalistic terms or whatever, when everybody's piling on, 
Like that isn't, that isn't the signal historically that something's going to die. When things die, they die a slow, quiet death. That's like volatility of structural transformation. But do you have the intestinal fortitude to do that? So part of it is that's related to institutional dislocation, but it's also like, are you comfortable like doing your own thing or betting against everyone? And that's where doing it with a niche community can be like super helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder kind of thematically, you know, in, in the Renaissance, is it fair to say like, you know, the position of the church, like just betting on the papacy was a bad move. And then like, I'm kind of thinking like, is it now just like a bad move to bet on the state, you know, both in terms of pensions, in terms of kind of job stability? Is that kind of the analogy here? Like, you know, in the past, it was sort of, you had to kind of decouple from just the papacy and kind of go your own way. Is it now about decoupling from the state and starting to innovate in this kind of new cyber economy? Yeah, it's like, we can use state. It's like just whatever mask you're wearing, it could have been like political, religio, religio, like cultural Mm. institution, or it could be state, or it could be the next thing will not be the state. It'll be something else that takes the place of it. And the state will persist just like IBM services or just like what have you. But like, it tends to bifurcate, right? So half the world splits and stays. The, the Renaissance wasn't everywhere all the time for everyone. It was pockets where it worked. Like we look back and say it eventually won out. Um, but like at the time for several hundred years, it was split. And so it depended on where you were and who you and who you were. Like betting on like the institutional power that was was like a safe bet like early on. And even as it balkanized geographically into like the enemy of enemy is my friend, like it was a safe bet for others. It was a, a bad bet for others. And so it came down to there are different pockets. Sometimes it was a path, path, path of least resistance. Often it wasn't. And then you have different strategies. Do you want to try to convince the power holders? Do you want to flee geographically? Do you want to persist as a community, like internal diaspora? Like how do you want to approach it? So it kind of depends. But I'd see a fracturing or a pluralistic, a bifurcation of like reality, basically. And then where do you, in synthetic connection for them it was literature and finance like a distributed communication and like you know paying for things where you could move from place to place but for us it's like not unlike that the question is like if you're in a community you may have to go against the against the flow or you may go with the flow depending upon where you are and who you surround yourself with so it tends to work out unevenly like that's the the core thing i'd mm-hmm. i'd encourage you to think about is like a tapestry or a mosaic of different pieces at different times and those shifting they shifted all the time like somebody flips somebody flips back etc cetera, etc cetera. i think uh what you're saying a uh, bifurcation of reality is really interesting to me because it does seem that the, this network age is going to reach different people at different moments and people are going to be living at different speeds, I think. And I think that's especially interesting as we, in the lens of perhaps increasing friction with the state before some of this gets resolved. And if certain people are going to be um, dealing with uh, quite legal questions and question of enforcement on a different um time scale. This sort of reminds me of something you you said before about um, NFTs be, uh, for something like property rights and being executed with, with smart contracts. And I, I was thinking about how that would work in different like jurisdictions and tools and enforcement. If you envision yes. some of these early days of people trying to move in that direction without the legal framework to back them up, you know, contracts work because people in the past have been fined or jailed for violating them. And we're going to have people who violate these, you know, sacred agreements without the, uh, the legal framework to enforce them in the traditional manner. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's, it's like, 
And it also has implications for even what you do with Urbit, too, in like terms of designing. That's kind of what I was hinting around about in, in terms of adoption. Like Right now, we're early, and it's a new thing. And so it's so primitive. Like Everybody says, oh, what if the world changed from one side of the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum? But it never really works out that way. It tends to, it tends to exist in different pieces of that spectrum at the same time for different communities by geography, by interest, by what have you. So the question is, like, how can you... How, and like that's the point at which we're at right now, right? Everybody goes, says, DAOs are wonderful. Like we can get rid of the corporation. They're like, oh, we can't get anything done. Kane has to come back and synthetic. And like then we'll basically find this ticking and talking back and forth and say, hey, for a high-end curated like situation like this, we're trying to do software. We need this type of structure. For this type of other use case and design space, we need this type of structure. You start profiling and templating. And then the question is like, how can you, your protocol, your community, accommodate those like other communities or other design? spaces like can you support multiple use cases and that gets into like partnership and what you lift and also what your goals are do you just want this pocket or do you want like 100k and like a million people using it in different ways in different contexts partially because of where they are globally or where they mm. are institutionally like that's the exact that's the question we haven't like we're early so i try not to press this with most people because you need like everybody loves monoism one thing everybody gets along or your thing is better than my thing and then we go into this thing but like how stuff tends to work out in history is like, think of it as a spectrum. Think of it as like, can you accommodate different community? The most successful movements accommodate like a variety of like pluralistic like use cases and design spaces. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's it's something that I've like read about in the context of the 20th century with just like issues with communism, for example, not being able to accommodate the sort of highest intellectual class. Um, or the entrepreneurial class within a society and just like kind of failing because it just tends to purge that. Um, no, it's a really, really interesting point. Um, I'm kind of thinking about just sort of like, yeah, the cycling or just like where this is moving towards and kind of something you said there, Josh, I'm just, it seems like, yeah, how are we going to reorganize? Is it, you know, there's this talk about network state, um, obviously Balaji's book, um, you know, patchwork had gone into similar things. Is it, are we talking like states, do you think, or cities? Like there was a lot of change in that industrial period, right? Of the city changing from like a hundred thousand people to one to 10 million. Do you think, do you, have you kind of thought about, <laughs> you know, like this kind of massive societal changes that also could play out in terms of how we're organizing and I'm just chuckling because you're hitting all the right stuff. All right, so just like touch of context, like what is a state? Like even like I, Balaji stuff, great. It helps people kind of understand it's a model, it's a heuristic. It projects mm. like what was and what will be. That tends not to happen. It tends to like, the, the way, like one way to think about it is like this idea of state is like, it's a figment, it's a construct. It's not real, right? Like political scientists will say, hey, what's a state? If you, if you do a poli-sci PhD, what's the first thing you do? You do Benedict Anderson and like a state is an imagined community instantiated mm. by currency and contract, right? There was no state in the Renaissance. There were cities, there are kind of, you might call them city-states. There are leagues, there are boons. There were actually families. It was family networks, and family didn't just mean bloodlines. It mean patronage and clientage, everybody who went with somebody versus somebody else, they dominated the states. They played with like the proto-states, like you know, pieces on a board, basically. Like the construct of state might not be, we, we view it that way because like we're a victim of our historical circumstance. That's where we are right now. But historically, it's a construct, which was when aggregation swung back, when the authority figures said, hey, we can't work with the Holy Roman Empire, with like religio, political, cultural like constructs. What do we do? Rise of the state. Hey, you didn't know you're a state. You thought you're part of a family, of a community, of a religious community, of a geography. You are part of a state. Guess what? Oh, you're a Frenchman. And that gives 
us rights and you obligations to do what we say, right? Surprise. <laughs> like that's like that's like that's one model to it, but it's like not the only model. And even that imagined consensual community and fancy of a currency and contract, we have that. So in that sense, crypto isn't just like replacing fiat or replacing a state, but like what does that unlock is like the question. So I think back to this pluralistic design space, you could map out on a grid. This would be like a great urban exercise, great crypto exercise. You map out on a grid and you say, what's the unit of like function like geographically, right? City, locale, county, region, mm. state, whatever else it is. Okay, fine. That's the grain we're going to do. All right. Then what's the, what's the friction? What's the thing that gets me to change basically, right? Maybe it's just vocation. I want to do something meaningful instead of a shitty office job. Maybe it's, oh, I want my Lambo. Okay, fine. Like maybe it's a, maybe it's like, I really hate dealing with like lawyers and tax people and dealing with the city. I want to be able to plant a tree or offer a bus stop for like the people out in front of our building without having to mess with the city. What, maybe it's friction. Maybe it's whatever it is. You figure out what's the use case that gets me to do something basically. And then each of those, you kind of map it out and say, against that grain, where does that work? How does that, how does that actually like work out? There is a certain amount of like energy you need in a network before you instantiate like IRL, but like that's the way to think about it. And that's kind of what is hinting around with that capitalistic interaction, capitalistic just as a placeholder for whatever the other driver is. So I think there's a variety of use cases. We're we're like binary in the sense it's a state or it's not a state. It's like that's fine if it helps people understand the concept, but like historically it doesn't work that way. And it might not. Like even right now, yeah. we're like medieval even asking the question, right? Like what's a state? Google has a bigger economy than anybody else. Like their workforce laws impact people more. Like you can, we've already started mm. to make this transition. We've done it without ownership, so we don't even recognize it. And to your earlier point, after the fact, we'll say, oh yeah, we're in this all along. So like mapping it out and saying, what's a unit of analysis? What's the change and what do you want to accomplish? Is like, that, that might be a different, a pluralistic approach to it, you know? Yeah, no, for I sure. Think, and I, th I think we actually had a discussion on this before where it was like, what is the state even giving us? It's like, okay, it's giving us a passport. Um, and then we're like, wait, cities are giving us most of what we actually like in life. And I was, but there was this interesting kind of like debate within crypto because I was in, right now I'm in Mendoza, Argentina, and I was chatting with the local kind of Ethereum community here. Um, and they're kind of like, oh, yeah, the mayor of Mendoza is very, like, crypto-friendly. He's meeting with us. And I was just thinking, like, okay, what can Mendoza actually do um, for you? Whereas, like, right now we're meeting with the El Salvadoran government about getting sort of a DAO law, which actually gives you legal protection. So there's this interesting debate here about, like, what can I get from yeah. these different yeah. units, from the city, from states? Like, what am I looking for? And I think... You know, I, I have some of that idea. I'm curious, Josh, like what, what you're kind of looking for, maybe from jurisdictions, from cities, or is it from countries that would kind of help this move along faster? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, that's like, that's, I haven't, I don't even let myself like imagine what I'm looking for from them. I sort of like, I'm already like prepared for like a fight and what we need to do. So <laughs> but if there was like kind of a state, entity, maybe a city, like we saw Miami um, has been pretty pro-crypto in terms of like you can pay your taxes in crypto now. I'm curious like what you're sort of like, if, if you just think the state is sort of irrelevant or if it can help. There's all the bucket list of stuff of clear regulation kind of staying out of my way, allowing me to do taxes. You, I mean, you can kind of borrow best of, you know, Germany's saying, I mean, there's all sorts of like mm -hmm. obvious stuff you should be doing. Um, like, I think that the real way that we're going to have to approach it is like the state, like 
call it Machiavelli or Nietzsche or whoever you want to like pick up basically, but your state people don't give up power. And it's not that you have to take it to them. You have to take it from them. The best way it works is by tricking them into doing the right thing, which means like making them irrelevant by you doing the thing. And so what I mean by that is like you outbuild them. You create so much value. Not only they can't ignore you, but they can't like tamp you down. You uh, very specifically, you do their job for them, which sounds like madness, right? Like what do they do? Oh, they, like, like, No, it's, this is interesting. Yeah, so it's like you could, like, what if instead of, like, back to this idea where Victorians, I have my day job, I have my cool interests, and then I do my donations over here, blah, blah, blah. But if I donate into that 501c3 project like, or industrial complex, like, that doesn't, like, work out. Like, what if what if I take it and I do a DAO and we do a cause, and instead of earning X percent, I earn 50% of X percent, and the rest goes to that thing. I can directly incentivize, like, farmers to plant trees or do not just carbon offset, but, like, small-scale broadacre farm or, like, a tactical example, like, what if I set up like the distributed communication and like we can pay for broadband for all our citizens? San Jose did that with Healing. Like we just we literally do what the government should be doing until they become irrelevant, basically. Like now the, that doesn't that's how it tends to work out as like a winning playbook historically. They persist. They're like IBM. They 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 persist, but they become less and less important as they go along. Is like that's kind of okay, how so I you, think about you it. You sort of like you're saying, take over their functions, just like do it better than them. People will come to your side, and then like if the state, if the legacy entities happen to kind of go along, that's great. But that's sort of like not at all expected. It's sort of expected that there'll be this confrontation, and that you have to basically go it alone. Is that right? Yeah. And they'll shake out. Certain ones will self-select like enemy. My enemy is my friend, right? Like Miami will say we hate California. And so they'll pop up and start doing reasonable tactics. What you're saying is really interesting to me is that in order to build the future that we're interested in living, it really is up to, um, you know, the people writ large to start making this decisions <laughs> um, about how they want to live. Like in that now there are for all the discourse that is about, you know, uh, revol the many revolutions that are, have occurred, you know, through through our recent history, it's only really now technologically possible to start wrenching away some of these really basic economic tools and to enforce a certain um, way of living and distribution of power by the daily choices that we're making. Is that what you're saying, partially? Yeah, yeah, no, ex exactly right. Like, that's a, it's a... <laughs> We have, like, we're just, people are always victims of their own times, right? And, like, when you're living in the greatest historical transformations, like, you're least likely to be aware of it, right? Nobody knew they were transitioning from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. Those are, like, really deep currents, like, versus waves. Or We focus on the ripples on the surface. And so the basic idea is, like, you don't, <laughs> we have this monoism idea. Everybody use my chain, wait for my state to switch, blah, blah, blah. Like, what do you need from them, and what can you do yourself? And, like, if you actually have economic tools and social coordination tools, like, taking the delta out of that TAM, you may be able to provide those things yourself, like, as a community and, like, have it in a financially viable way, not just for you to make a living, but for you to accomplish goals for your neighbor and for your community. That was, the, that was like, the essence of, like, Reformation capitalism, right? It's, like, you do your thing and you help the other people at the same time, like, rather than asking for permission from the from the government to be able to do this. Like, of course you have to interact with them. You'll have geographic slippage. You'll have people like popping up and persisting here and there. But that idea of like not waiting for them to do the thing, but you doing the thing, yes, it's not fair. Totally not fair. Like that they should be doing a good job. We're at this point in the history, that's what history is helpful for. Where's the clock? We're at the clock where they're like crumbling under their own weight. No one could defeat like French emperor. It was just the petite functionaries and like the bureaucrats literally, right? That took them down. And so like now we have a US economy that's like a third for trust enforcement, right? It's like automate that and like persist. And like with your new financial tools, like 
you can literally do that. You can not work an office job, you can be an entrepreneur, not just a welder, but like anything along these lines. And with a portion of that, instead of donating it on the weekends or doing whatever, like make that economically viable. I can't emphasize that enough, right? Like you have a governance like issue where you're running like, you know, governance experiments like Petri dishes in a synthetic world you never could do before historically. And like now your causes can become financially viable. Instead of just throwing money away, you can like have a regenerative, like recursive, like function for like wealth and cause creation for the thing you care about, which could be over lap with like what government typically does, right? But you don't need to persuade them through political apparatus. You can just fund the people to do the thing directly. Instead of proxying their interests through advertising or through like contribution, you can just literally fund the people to do the thing directly, right? Like that's like craziness. Yeah. And also that's always how it was up until recently. We kind of forgot that. We just need to remember how this is this is how it typically works out, right? Yeah, that's really exciting to me because I think something that I get really skeptical of, especially when you see something like crypto becoming mainstream and you have all the same players, the VC funds, the Winklevi moving in to try to claim space. You start worrying about <laughs> this technology still being dictated from the top down. And like actually, you know, talking about Blagi's network state and things like that, some people's visions uh, involve something like organizing around shared values or something, which I've, I've been skeptical of because it seems like nothing that's dictated unto you, even if you're convincing people to join you can last. I'm reminded of uh, this quote that the guys here have heard me say a million times, but Emil Chorin, the Romanian aphorist, who uh, I'm a big fan of, said something like, all our worst crimes are committed out of enthusiasm. And there's something about having people on top rallying people and say, no, you need to live this way, let's do it, that it feels like it'll necessarily be corrupted. But this vision that you're offering, an alternative in which together, um, everyday people are deciding how we want to use our resources and how to apply this technology seems like a really positive vision for the future that I don't know I've heard articulated quite so precisely. The thing that everyone has to get out of their head, I'm guilty of this too, it's just like pounded into us, like post-enlightenment, like institutional industrialism, like just puts us in our head. It's like, we have this monoism like view, right? We, yeah, we have representative government, but somebody wins, somebody loses, and like you have to go along with the winners and they dictate what happens to you, right? Like that's, that's in our heads, basically, this monoism. That's because we're medieval. That's because like we're in this like hegemon construct, right? The crazy part about like crypto in the 14th, 15th, 16th century was that it like it's the shift from hegemonic like pyramid to pluralistic construct on a spectrum which accommodates multiple design in spaces and instances and use cases even when they conflict, which doesn't sound like win because you don't go all the way over to the other pole. So you will have neobanks, you will have Winklevi, you will have other stuff, and we'll say, oh, that's so shitty, and everybody will say, oh, it didn't do anything different. But like, it's, it won't be the same aggregation. You will also have a long tail of distributed economic like interests and communities like pursuing esoteric subjects and like being able to like live their life with like meaningful vocation, help other people. Both these things will be true at the same time. Like very much like at the Renaissance, you had, it wasn't just the demise of like Holy Roman Empire, like Roman Catholic Church, like that persisted in places, in a weakened form, in different ways. You had a new version of those folks doing similar stuff, but now you, Renaissance revolutionary you, had the opportunity to opt out of that if you wanted to and to find other people. So you will have aggregation, you'll also have disaggregation. Like it isn't one thing to another, it's one thing to many things like at the same time, even juxtaposed geographically, ideologically, epistemologically, ontologically, whatever you want to say. Yeah, that's 
That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for, um, for answering all this. I think before we, before we release you. Oh, geez. Oh, for you. This was a fun conversation. Yeah. I didn't know what's going on that long. Uh, yeah, I'm no. loving this. I think, I think we wanted to make sure that we got to um, some questions from some of our, our Urbit listeners to, to throw out to you, if that's all right. Yes. Great. Amen. Yeah, yeah. You're, yeah, you're I'm super excited about Urbit. <laughs> I'm super excited about Urbit just to see what you guys do with this. Like speaking, everything I've said like applies specifically. Like in that pluralistic design space and who you want to be and how you do it and enemy and my enemy and like I think all that stuff is like in a uh, unit of anal- unit of like change and like what the value prop is for each one. I think that's like that's all stuff that I'm like super excited to see how you guys like work that view in it. Yeah, and six I days to assembly. I'm pretty pumped. <laughs> I think uh, weirdly both Timbuk and Fitchell had conflicts, um, so I will be the main network ager oh, man. representing. But yeah, I'm excited for that. I mean, we have the panel coming up too, so that'll be good. So uh, one question we got for you, Josh, is what do you think the intersection of AI and crypto will look like? You know, MidJourney and similar AI-generated programs are incredibly innovative right now and unlock all this de- uh, all this type of creativity, but those platforms could then possibly become like new gatekeepers in a way who has access to those things. You can imagine maybe mid-journey type systems that create music, fiction, but also legal documents. Um, so I'm, we're, we're wondering how you think AI might interact with, with crypto, with blockchain and, and smart contracts, and will there be a clash? Yeah, no, for sure. And just full disclosure, that was that was background of the companies we built and sold to an MIT spin out was AI. And so like, we know that I used to write some of those algorithms. Like I know it like absolutely well, like undergrad way of explaining it is AI aggregates AI, like uh, smashes to total addressable market. It allows you to like smash everything into one bucket, like very automatically is the easiest way to like describe it where crypto is about like empowering decentralized distribution. That's like the easy way to answer it that most people will wrap their heads around. The real answer is like a little bit more complex. It's a back to this idea of like, it's a tool, it's a technology, like crypto, you'll have aggregation in crypto. Some people use centralized digital currencies. You'll have like uh, Winklevi doing their thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So too, at the same time, will you have real meaningful distributed decentralized use cases and communities like exercising self-sovereignty? Both these things will be true. Same thing with crypto as with AI. You'll have like similar things. It'll be a powerful toolkit for someone like interested in like creating vocation where they can outsource like a bunch of different stuff technically, um, but and you'll have aggregate, but it tends to lean towards aggregation versus decentralization. The thing I would say, and like everybody, the usual narrative is like AI is going to come for all the jobs, blah, blah, blah. And like now that it's not just truckers driving, all of a sudden we're concerned when we realize it's like art and like, you know, uh, tax code or whatever, right? Like, but the, the basic idea is like demographically, like just back to this unsexy and glamorous thing, like the global, like post World War II, we're in like demographic free fall, right? Like we're uh, the you're we're all going to become Japan. Like we have to, we won't have enough people to persist in the jobs we have. I mean, us Catholics are trying to reverse that, but yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I mean, Lutherans, we have a good like uh, you know theology of creation. And all that stuff too. It's like there's like there's all this stuff going on. It's true, but like it's like globally that won't happen. So like then then it gets interesting, right? So how do I replace, it's not taking my jobs, it's fulfilling the jobs that we don't have anyone to do. And like, part of that'll be AI, but I actually think crypto is gonna be more important. Like a third of the American workforce is around enforcing trust, tax, legal, what have you. Like the only way we have any reasonable sustaining of like, not just productivity, but like 
persistence is by automating the trust through like white collar jobs, not replacing people, but just like replacing the things that are going to fall apart because we won't have enough people. So it'll be pluralistic. You'll have good use cases, bad use cases. It skews towards aggregation, which tends to be bad. It's more brittle, like still. I think it doesn't have the same use cases in the same way. And probably the smart answer is to say it works harmoniously with crypto, blah, blah, blah. But I think it'll be a bit of a, like a pluralistic construct. Sometimes it'll be enemy and my enemy is a friend. Sometimes it'll be just my enemy. Awesome. Yeah. And we want to thank uh, Nospex Larsut. Larsut. I never know how to do our urban pronunciations uh, for that question. <laughs> and uh, they've, got a, they've got another one for you, Josh. Um, they're wondering what are some of the pro-social projects going on in crypto that you're most excited about, you know, places that are maybe investing in a building in a blighted neighborhood. I guess you did that in, <laughs> in Kentucky. And um, also wondering, should crypto be more ostentatious about giving, you know, communal and charity investment? Um, and what are the, the implications of that? Oh, man, that's good questions. Yeah. Um, on the social side, I... I Again, we always come at it in this like Victorian construct of my talking parlor and my eating parlor or whatever. Like if it like being able to like actually access information that isn't skewed against me for somebody else's like financial benefit, like where I can actually access ideas which not only are not dominant but may benefit me at the ex- at the expense of like hegemonic construct. I think that's like a massive social good in itself, right? That's like the primitive behind like being able to have access to any yeah. social good. Like that sort of stuff is super important and also on the broadcast layer being able to broadcast the signal out. And so you have like different 5G, IoT, like Wi-Fi, like satellite things like where the broadcast, so the algorithm, the archiving, the computing, which is obviously Urbit, like you can say that, and like the, the broadcast layer itself, like all those are like, we haven't had the internet yet. We had this false fork. Like we got better in the sense we're not slaving away Oliver Twist style or like having kids like ground up and like factory wheels. That's great. But like that's on a false fork. Imagine what you can do when you have like meaningful interaction between IRL and yes. digitization. And so like that's what I'm that's what I'm jazzed mm. for. Like and on that on the cause side, the pure play cause, it's like we I shouldn't get too personal, but like if you want to set up a foundation, you enter in this 501c3 complex, right? Where you hire people to manage it and you comply with the tax stuff. And like essentially like very little of your dollar actually goes to the cause you want to because you're working through proxy. It's just like if you want to run a digital business, you're trying to like buy Facebook ads to like proxy somebody to influence them into something to do versus give them ownership to directly incent them. And so like the idea of a cause not having to work through proxies, but like you want to do something meaningful, whether it's government or just you want to plant trees you can pay farmers to do that how do you sustain that oh you can put the thing on like you can put the thing on your DeFi primitive not through a neobank so you don't have to rely on jurisprudence laws but where it executes as a contract automatically so you get paid back and you shift part of that interest to doing the cause and then guess what it doesn't go away it persists over time so you're only making you know x percent but your y percent is going to them like i think disintermediating the nonprofit institutional construct is like super powerful and like we're just not there yet in the adoption curve. But when that clicks with people, I mean, behind the scenes, some of the stuff we've done, there's already people, you know, doing that sort of stuff where they're like, wow, major donors are like, I give this money every year and then I have to give it again the next year. What if 80% of that cycles into the next cycle? Oh, frick, I can do more. How much more efficient is it? We're starting to see that happen. It's not super uh, socially acceptable to talk about that out loud, but we're seeing that happen because then you're like bagging on the nonprofit construct and that gets you in trouble. But it's it's coming for sure, I promise. Awesome, Josh. Yeah, what a great answer. And uh, I think that's um, probably what we've got time for. But thank you so much for joining us. This has been such an exciting conversation and great to 
really get a chance to talk to you after listening to you on some other podcasts. I think that this was Oh, um, this is fun. Content. Are we supposed to talk out loud about Urbit, or is Urbit like Fight Club, where you don't say anything about it? No, uh, it's uh, it is. Yeah, we shouldn't have even even mentioned it. No, I mean, you know, this. I think we're this is not just an Urbit uh, show podcast. This is. I think we're interested in all the ways that the network age is going to manifest. And you did um, a wonderful job discussing those things with us. Um, so yeah, I want to uh, thank you, and uh, to all our listeners, uh, we'll see you next week.